Welcome to the Crexy Podcast, an insider's look at all things commercial real estate. I'm Giannis Papadakis, Business Development Manager at Crexy and today's host. Each episode, the Crexy team dives into a broad range of topics and conversations with featured experts to investigate trends, educate listeners, and understand the latest industry news in commercial real estate. As the nation's fastest growing online CRE platform, we're excited to provide a window into the inner workings of commercial real estate for this generation and the next. Welcome and thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Crexy Podcast, an insider's look at all things commercial real estate. In this show, we cover a broad range of topics that both cater to commercial real estate newcomers and industry leaders alike. I'm your host, Giannis Papadakis, Business Development Manager at Crexy, and today we are thrilled to be sitting down with Michael Nisley, Vice Chair and National Director at Collier's' Manufactured Housing and RV Group. Before we dive in, a little bit about our guest. Michael Nisley is the founding member of the Manufactured Housing and RV Group and leads the team as the Vice Chair and National Director. He works closely with his team to oversee the execution of the team's manufactured home community, recreational vehicle community, and land assignments. This includes strategic positioning of offerings, coordination of the financial and underwriting process, and interaction with the key decision makers within industry REITs, large institutional investment firms, family offices, and owner operators. Nisley has been an integral part in the sale and appraisals of more than $100 billion of commercial real estate assets, including the 2019 closing of a 24-property Canadian manufactured home portfolio that closed at nearly $200 million, which was the most significant Canadian manufactured home, RV resort, and portfolio acquisition for a large Canadian pension fund. In 2022, Mike closed a $114 million MHC portfolio in Central Florida. These recent closings have led Nisley to be consistently ranked in the 2019, 2021, and 2022 Everest Club, recognizing the top 10% of all Collier's professionals in brokerage, valuation, and corporate solutions across the United States, business based on revenue production. Before joining Collier's, he was the founder, top producer, and director of the MHRV and Marina Groups at CBRE for 10 years. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jonas. How's it going? Uh, it's going well. And I've got to ask, is it true what they say that, you know, the, a $200 million deal is, you know, no different than the $2 million deal? It, it's, you know, no matter the size, it's the same problem, same issues, or do things get more complicated there when you're, you know, swinging on those really big numbers? Um, I think the larger deals are are similar in many ways. I think that uh, uh, the focus uh on the, on the larger deals is on some, some different factors. I think the audience is a little different. And so you have to customize it, but the nuts and bolts of the deal are very similar, just more zeros. Got it. Well, I know we just covered your background. I'd love to briefly connect and learn more about your career path and lessons learned along the way. How did you first get your start in commercial real estate? So, uh, I, uh, I got into the business cause my family was in the business. And um, we, we had an uh, unfortunate death in the family. Uh, the patriarch of the family passed away. And, uh, and uh, I was asked at the funeral to help the family out. And so, so it was an unexpected uh, situation. I hadn't worked full time in this business at all. I'd been in real estate a little bit, but, uh, but not full time. And so I just, you know, I was forced to step up and help the family. And, uh, and so I learned quickly and, um, and then I learned to like it. It's unique. Um, and, uh, and I really enjoyed it. So, so that gave me the start in the business. What drew you in particular to the world of RVs and manufactured housing? Uh, currently what, what I do now. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, my primary business is rep- representing sellers my primary business in um, in disposing of their assets, refinancing of their assets, and then part of our extended team is um, is Bruce Nell and the appraisal group, and we're also the largest appraisers in the world of mobile home parks and RV parks. So, uh, 
So that's our primary goal, but, uh, but we touch sort of all areas of the business. Um, and we do consulting for clients. We help them, you know, reposition. If they're not ready to sell, we'll give them uh, some advice on what they can do to enhance the value of their communities and, uh, and then revisit the sale of it at a later date or a refinancing of it at a later date. Early in your career path, what were some lessons that you learned that, you know, proved essential, you know, whether skills related, habit related or otherwise? So I think uh, when I transitioned uh, from the family office and ownership to the brokerage business, um, I think I had a unique perspective being an owner. So, so my clients were who I used to be. And so I put myself in their shoes and I, and I talked to them on their level and their concerns. And I think that, I think that set me apart and it, it gave me a unique perspective of their, their challenges and, and what they think about on a daily basis. And, um, you know, some of the people that haven't been in the operations and ownership don't have that, uh, don't have the luxury of, of knowing, you know, those things. But, but I think that was a, a big part of me being successful is understanding uh, the client and their needs. Michael, uh, were there any moments early in your career uh, that were, let's call them favorite mistakes or, you know, things that course corrected you onto your current path that maybe you didn't recognize at the time were opportunities? Yeah, I think that, um, I think that early in my career, um, I, I think I was willing to do more difficult deals uh, that, um, you know, I didn't know better. So I, so I worked very hard, but I learned a lot from it. I learned as it related to assemblage or development, which is a lot more work uh, for doing the same deal uh, where you could just, you could sell a cash flowing stabilized property, but an assemblage for a change of use or a development deal are, it's a lot more work, a lot more understanding of the business. And so I was willing to do those type of deals. And I think that that, that actually educated me and, um, and it helped me later in my career. Um, so, so I think that probably is, is foundational to my knowledge and understanding and experience. Um, but, uh, you know, not, not necessarily the most, uh, the, the easiest path to go in transactions because a long timeline and difficulty if you're trying to assemble multiple parcels and it only works if you can do all five. And if somebody says no, then you don't have a deal. So it's risky, but, uh, right. but I learned a lot. Can you talk us through the story of founding uh, the Collier's Manufactured Housing and RV Group? How did you build your team? Yeah. So, well, it actually goes back into when I first started with a company called Grub and Ellis. And when I founded that group, uh, you know, there was really, it was a public company, one of the top three public companies. And, but there was not, there was no institutional brokerage anywhere in the States, you know, anywhere. And so, you know, at that time, the banks didn't want to lend um, on this asset class. And so, and when I, when I joined uh, Grub and Ellis, there's a bunch of senior brokers that did all the other asset classes that are sort of office, industrial, multifamily, retail. And these guys were like, what do you do? And, and I told them what I did and they're like, uh, you know, they sort of laughed and, and all that. And, and so that was, that was the foundation. So I had to prove myself and it was, a it wasn't a favorite asset class by any means. And so, um, and then when it came to the company and, and building a team and resources, it, I had to be very entrepreneurial within a large company because when I went to the managers or I went to corporate, there was no budget for what I did because, you know, it was, it was such a, uh, I don't know, a non-focal point to the company. They liked my, my unique focus, but they weren't willing to really bet on it in a big way at that point until I proved myself. So so I had to roll my sleeves up and you know, 18 months I made zero and, uh, you know, and, and my wife was wondering, did we make a good choice or did we not? And, and I said, well, all the guys around me that I talked to are saying, you're doing a good job, keep it up. And, and the clients, I feel like things are getting close. And so, so I, you know, I kept the faith and, uh, in, in, 
you know, another, I don't know, three to six months, I had, you know, a lot of closings happening. And so it gave me some optimism and, and momentum. And then, you know, by the time year two, two and a half came along between year two and a half to year five in my first five years, I, I was the top producer in the state of Florida for a year three and a half to four and a half. And then, um, and then top 50 in the country in my fifth year. And so, um, so that was great. It gave me great momentum. I worked hard. And so, so then after that happened and I, and I proved myself then, um, then CBRE and other firms were wanting me to join and start, you know, join their company and start a platform. And, and so, uh, so, Towards the end of uh, Grub and Ellis, all those brokers that were laughing at me and stuff were inviting me to lunch and saying, how'd you do this and all that. And so it felt good. And but it was a lot of hard work, a lot of scars, a lot of, you know, heartache and, and things along the way. But but it was very uh, it was a very good experience. And so so then I came to CBRE and they were the largest firm in the world and they had more resources to put towards what I did. Cause I, you know, I proved myself and proved that the asset class is worthy of some investment. Uh, but it wasn't massive investment, but it was more than I'd ever had. So I could, you know, so I could have support and I could have marketing and have some team members join and, um, you know, brokers, they helped me, you know, guarantee brokers draw and things like that. So, so it allowed me to, to start a platform that was meaningful and a group that's, you know, focused on the asset class and, and as far as the industry goes, like everybody was like, wow, CBRE does manufactured housing and RV parks. I've never thought they would do that. And so CBRE had, uh, you know, far and wide reach into the debt markets, into the capital markets, the investment world. And so it sort of put manufactured housing on the radar for all the institutional investors around the world. And eventually, I think that that paid dividends and uh, you know, built a nice team and and had a lot of success at CBRE over that ten year period, and and also while I was at CBRE, I launched the Marina Group, and um, which was also pioneering and wasn't institutionalized, and it required a lot of hard work, and and so I had to do a lot of these startup type of uh, work within a large corporation that I did with mobile home and RV parks. Um, but eventually that paid dividends. And towards the end of my CBRE years, I, I finally got uh, Equity Lifestyle and Sam Zell's group into the marina space, which, you know, it took almost seven years of talking with them and saying this is very similar to RV parks and you're already in the RV park business. So, you know, it's not that much of a reach, but big public companies, they need to, to vet things. They need to make sure board members and others are, are all sort of behind it before they make a move. And so they finally made a move and it was uh, transformational to the industry, the marine industry. And now uh, the top two players in the mobile home and RV business are Sun Communities and ELS. And they're both very large owners, the largest owners in the world of marinas. And it's a public company and the shareholders are happy. And so just amazing. So, you know, I think, you know, for me to get that started, I, I didn't really, I didn't know better. I just tried and I already had a relationship with them and I thought it was logical. And, and so, so that was a, a nice accomplishment. And, um, so then, uh, after 10 years, uh, I had tried to recruit my friend Bruce Nell to come to CBRE for 10 years while I was there. Cause he's the top appraiser in the world and he was at Collier's and, uh, we couldn't get it done. Uh, CBRE is a very large company and a good company, but they it's it's very sort of structured and and bruce was used to being sort of the one single point for this asset class globally for colliers and um cbre it was more difficult to get that type of parallel type of position and so so uh so i had an opportunity to uh to make the leap to colliers and um and join bruce which i think is you know very strategic because in this asset class one of the other things that is very unique is um, information, right? So you can push the button for office, industrial, apartments, almost every other asset class, you could push a couple buttons and you can have all the information you need on any market. 
any transaction, any rent comps. But when it comes to mobile home parks or RV parks, that's not the case. So uh, Bruce has a very competitive, a big competitive advantage because uh, he does more appraisals globally than anyone in this asset class. So I thought, hmm, I think that's a strategic thing. He's got great relationships in the business. He's well-respected. I said, he and I together can, can do great things. So I joined Collier's and uh, it's been seven or eight years now. And I've, I've had a lot of success at Collier's and I've built a great team. And I think Collier's, the good thing about Collier's is they already had a national group for appraisal. So they knew the asset class was legitimate. They knew that it, it was established through Bruce. And so I think the, all I was doing is adding brokerage and financing to it. So it was just extending what they already believed in, even though it was a different profit center and all that. It, it was uh, probably less of a, a difficult sale to the corporate office because I'd already achieved things at CBRE. And, and so, so it was a great move, I think. And uh, Collier's embraces uh, specialty groups. And so, so they welcomed me and, and provided the resources to build the team and have success. So, Excellent. Can you share some of your fundamental tenets of your work ethic that contributed to your success that you maintain to this day, either as a broker or as your team's leader? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you asked before some of the things, maybe uh, mistakes or challenges I had early on. And then what you said sort of is a little bit parallel, but I think that one of the things I've learned is early on, I didn't have the luxury of having, you know, a team with a broad array of skill sets. And so I had to wear a lot of hats and I'm not good at everything. And so I think that when, when I try to be everyone, I'm, I, I'm not as effective. So uh, at Collier's, I was able to hire people that are very good at what they do and rely on them and trust them. And, and so I think that I think is the key to success and in any team environment, I think that, uh, whether it's a sports team or, or business or entrepreneurs or, or brokers. I think it's, it's the same thing. I've got one of the best underwriters in the industry from Blackstone and Carlisle, Richard, and he's, he's the best in the industry. So Richard leads our underwriting as a junior analyst underneath him, but, but he's the best and, and he's seen all the different kinds of deals and how to look at them. So I rely on him to sort of, uh, analyze the deals. And then he and I have a conversation and talk about the high level things. So he helps me be smarter and be more successful. And, um, and then again, I'm not, I'm not doing it all myself. And the same applies for marketing. I've got one of the best people in the industry and in marketing, Ashley. And so she runs our marketing team. And so she knows the internal policies at Collier's she knows about social media and all the new things that are happening today that have changed significantly since I joined. And so I rely on her and she runs her group and, and, you know, I don't micromanage. I don't need to, they, they're professionals. They know what they, they do. And, and I've got other people on the team that are, they're specialists in databases, people that specialize in sort of operations that there's people that are, that sort of, orchestrate all the different groups within the team and then interact with me. And so, so I think that the key to success in business is, is letting those people do their things and not, not getting too involved, uh, being honest about who you are and what your strengths are and, and just letting them uh, do their thing. I, I think that's the key. And, and early in my career, I didn't have the ability to do that. So it's just, I just remember getting in the weeds on a lot of things and it wasn't my strength and, and it didn't serve me. So, so I think that I've learned. Doubling down on your strength and, you know, putting good people in, in their places on the board and letting them do their own thing. Exactly. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Well, moving on to our topic for the day, the world of manufactured housing and RVs. To provide some context into this very uh, niche sector, please tell us, um, what it is and what the details are. For example, what are the differences between each type and what are the similarities? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that um, we'll start off with manufactured housing. Some people know it as mobile home parks. Um, <clears throat> it's um, primary housing, so it's not vacation. It's, it's someone's primary home. Um, the traditional business model is the home is owned by the resident and they lease the land from the owner of the park, right? So that's the traditional business model. And they lease the land for uh, what they call lot rent. And sometimes that lot rent will include utilities. Sometimes it will be net of utilities. And sometimes they're provided amenities, clubhouse and, and other amenities within the community. And sometimes it's very basic and it's just it's just the land and their and their pad and their utilities. And so, um, but, you know, through the years, um, it, it's always been one of the most affordable, if not the most affordable forms of housing in the United States. And uh, when you can manufacture a home for, I don't know, 50 to $75 a square foot, you're, you're starting off at a competitive advantage from the construction costs of a single family home. You're, you're probably one third of the cost of a construction of a single family home, maybe more. And, uh, and so I think that alone provides value. Certainly you have to pay the lot rent, but over the years, it's still been largely the, probably the most affordable unregulated uh, form of housing. So it's not, not a government subsidized apartment. It's, it's market market rate. Let's, uh, let's switch over from manufactured housing to RVs. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, perfect. So, yeah. So on the RV side, uh, the difference between RV and, and mobile home parks or manufactured housing, RVs have traditionally been known as, you know, vacation type of uh, destinations. Um, and over the years that's evolved and into the, you know, the RV industry has has been sort of people traveling in their RV and they stay overnight along the way or they go to a destination on a lake that has an RV resort and they park there and they stay there for a longer time. That's traditionally, you know, been what RV parks are and it's evolved significantly through the years. I think it's, you know, there's huge multi-million dollar RVs that are sold now and so it's it's, it's not just affordable vacation. It's, it's the whole spectrum. Uh, you've got the rich and the famous that have, and then you've got more affordable vacations with the, the smaller, you know, more modest RVs that tow behind your car. You've got the other ones that are pop-ups. You've got all different kinds of RV. Um, but, but it's, you know, largely been known as a vacation. And you fast forward today, they have, you know, RVs that are, something called park model, which is almost a permanent structure. It is a permanent structure, but it's still classified as an RV. And um, those are used as seasonal residents. So if you live in, um, you know, in, in Canada, you know, uh, they all vacation in their, their lake house, their cottage, right? So if you can't afford a million and a half dollar, $2 million cottage, there's often options within the RV space where you can rent an RV that's permanent or a park model that's permanent or a cottage or cabin. And it's an affordable option. You're still on that lake. You still get to enjoy the beauty, um, but it's just a more affordable option, but it's a longer term. They often rent those all summer long. It might be a season. So it might be a five or six month rental. And the flip side, when it gets cold in Canada, a lot of the Canadians come to Florida and they may rent uh, for six months in Florida to stay out of the cold. And so, and it's in an RV park and it might be in something called a park model, which is, which if you looked at it, you might say that looks like a mobile home, but it's actually called a park model. And it had some technical things related to the number of square feet, but it doesn't move and it's still classified as an RV, which is significant. Um, but it does provide a vacation home for those people and uh, affordable vacation. Otherwise, you know, when you're staying at the hotels or you have to rent Airbnb and all those things, everything's expensive today. So 
So I think that it's it's a viable option for that. And and oftentimes seniors have been in both of these categories, in both MH and RV, and it's been largely dominated by seniors. I think today there's some trends where, you know, some of the young millennials and generation X, Y, I don't know all the generations, but but all the younger groups of people are are enjoying the RV lifestyle because the remote work, you know, all they need is Wi-Fi and and maybe uh, a computer and and a camera and and they can conduct and do everything they want to do and and so and California generally leads the way and then a lot of a lot of California and and some of the tech industry of you know they may go on a three month vacation and they're working from their RV and as long as they've got Wi-Fi they're they're very happy and they can enjoy the outdoor life and I think uh, so it's so both of those. Um, Industries have have really uh, grown significantly over the last twenty years, and so you know, going back again to the MH and the RV, when I started um, in this business as a principal, my family, uh, when we bought and financed uh, mobile home parks, there was literally no banks that wanted to do any financing, and if it was, it wasn't a good loan and. What do you think the hesitation was for lenders back then? Uh, I think that it just had a perceived uh, higher risk or, you know, it may not have been as shiny and and beautiful. And and so I think the banks just didn't want anything to do with it. I think there's, you know, there's been some, uh, you know, storms that have, you know, that have damaged mobile home parks. And so possibly that had something to do with it. But I think it was just a, it was a mom and pop industry. It wasn't institutionalized, wasn't very well understood. Um, and, um, and, and affordable sometimes isn't, you know, isn't favored by, by investor groups um, and, and banks. And, and so I think that they've come to appreciate it and understand that it's a vital part of the business and it's probably one of the best performing asset classes, but at the time it wasn't in favor. And so, so I think that it, it was a different world. So, and so values were lower because there was no financing. Usually, financing helps an industry mature and and um, prosper. And so, so when we first started, there was there was nothing in in the lending universe. There were no institutional investors in the business, and so it was just in its infancy. And so you could buy deals for you know, a very good price, very good cap rates going in. And there's, you know, there's upside, but, but I think what, what happened with this business is little by little, uh, you know, smart investors that were looking at other asset classes that were saturated and very competitive and pricey and maybe less upside, they started, you know, going on the fringe asset classes and taking some risk. And so as that money and the educated money flowed into mobile home parks and then later RV parks, I think it helped form a good foundation in those niche asset classes that, you know, that brought us to where we are today, where, you know, we've got all the major private equity groups. We've got, you know, Fannie and Freddie that are financing mobile home parks and um, Blackstone, Carlisle, Apollo, you know, KKR, TPG, just all the big guys. All the big all boys, in, yeah. They're all in the business and and not just in the US, globally. They're investing right. globally. So this, right. you know, this industry is in Australia, UK, all over Europe, Canada, and the US. And so uh, that's the other thing that's evolved over the years is as the institutional investors have gotten involved, they were generally all only US or only Australia or only Europe. They broadened their their range yeah. now. It's a world market, yeah. You know, now that it has matured some, yep. can you share with us what are some fundamentals, some metrics that either people hunting for deals or people trying to underwrite these should be looking for? Well, um, so I think that when people look at uh, manufactured housing, I think that. Um, Fannie and Freddie being in the business is is vital for this business uh, having success 
on the lending side. It adds a, a layer of safety. Government backed is is the best is you know best that it gets. And um, and so if you look at um, an investment that is or can be Fannie qualified, then I think that gives you safety knowing when you finance or refinance that you can get favorable terms. I think that's pretty important. Um, there are other options. There's life codes, there's CMBS, there's regional, local and regional banks. There's the manufactured housing industry is, is, you know, very mature today mm-hmm. with, uh, with debt and with the equity groups that are in it. I think it's just, it's well known. Uh, the business model is very well known and, and some of the, uh, expense line items are very well understood and, and the levers you can pull to achieve upside with, with rent growth and, and all of that. I think it's very well understood. So I think it's, it's becoming a mature industry. It still, uh, still has a high percentage of mom and pop, but it's, but it's, you know, it's getting gobbled up quickly. The MH space. Michael, uh, pretend like I, you know, have no knowledge whatsoever about sure. uh, mobile homes or RVs, and I'm looking to make my first purchase. Sure, you know what? Um, what basics would you tell me to look for if I'm out hunting for deals on my own? Yep. You know what? What I know for for example, you know, if you're going to buy um, a QSR, you know, a quick service restaurant, you really want to see a healthy rent to sales ratio, yep. or um, you know, if you're going industrial, you want to be in an area where, you know, there's, you know, maybe a logistics core, um, what things should I be looking for if I'm considering entering this space as a buyer? Yeah. So, uh, manufactured housing, mobile home parks, I think, um, you know, it's similar fundamentals to housing in general. I think, uh, if you're targeting seniors, if it's a senior target, then you would, you would look for the drivers of senior and which is, has generally been Sunbelt. Um, and, and so, you know, as an investor, you want to get ahead of where the migration of seniors are going and make sure that you can capture that population growth. Mm-hmm. Florida has been a no brainer. Uh, Arizona has been a no brainer through the years for seniors. Those two States dominate. Um, and so for the 55 plus communities, they've been great. So you want to get ahead of that. The other thing, if you're investing in it, I think that um, depending on the type of investor you are, if you can go in markets or submarkets that have higher rents, um, that generally works well because when you raise rents, it's it moves the needle. When you spend capital on improvements of any kind, you're going to get a bigger lift um, for your for your capital spending. Um, low rent markets. Um, you know, just for example, if you move new homes in, those homes could be 50,000 to 80,000 each. And so uh, if you don't recover all that cost, then you're, you're doing that and trading that. It's just an example of a $1,000 a month market for lot rent versus a $250 a month lot rent market. And you're spending the same 50 to 80,000 for a home. So you look at the numbers and you say, I'm going to move 10, 10 new homes in and spend uh, 500 to 800,000, but my rent in one market is going to be a thousand times 10 and the other one's 250 times 10. So it's huge difference, same spending. So, so I think higher rent markets are typically preferred. Got it. And what does the current investment landscape look like? Where do you see most of the investment coming from right now? Most of the interest? Yeah. So, so I think that, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a loaded question because, You've got two different audiences or a few different audiences. I think you've got the large institutions that are more allocating capital and they're, um, they probably don't want to do heavy value add. They, they don't want to have any kind of, um, they, they just want to allocate money and, and buy a safe core asset. And then you've got more of the entrepreneurial, uh, types, uh, and some family office in between, and they're willing to take more risk. And so I think that, uh, and, and typically the in investment grade properties were larger in scale. So you would, you know, early on the, you know, the REITs, which, you know, the REITs are defined as Sun Communities, Equity Lifestyle, UMH, 
and recently uh, the public REIT. Recently, there's one called Flagship that's based in Toronto, but it only owns U.S. assets. So those are public public REITs that are in the in the uh, manufactured housing business and RV business. And then there's a lot of private equity and a lot of you know private funds that are in it. But so I think that you know their investment decisions are different than entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurs are looking for generally looking to create value and and so they're willing to buy something a little bit less um less maybe fanny or freddy ready or something that 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 uh requires development or rehab rehabbing the community or something that's more heavy lifting the, the institutions aren't generally as interested in that and so um so i think and then the size back to the size again the institutions are are owning larger assets um, as the supply, the availability of, of assets dwindles, then the large institutions may will be willing to buy smaller assets. You know, maybe it used to be 400 was the ultimate size, and now then it went down to 300, and then 200, and maybe some right. of the institutions will buy 150 sites now. So the people that are trying to get ahead of the curve, the Investor types may be buying 50 to 100 site communities and clustering them in a geographic area or zip code and getting ready for the big guys when they come to the conclusion that they need to dip down further. So I, I think what I'm hearing is if you're thinking about entering the space, you know, don't wait because pretty soon you may be competing with, you know, people way outside of your weight class. Definitely. There's a lot of competition. There's a lot of money chasing deals, uh, but there's still opportunities. I think that um, there's generally, I think in the U.S., there's roughly 50,000 mobile home parks and uh, there's roughly 15,000 RV parks. And so within those numbers, there's all different sizes and shapes. So of that 50,000, there might be, I don't know, 20,000 that are I don't know, investment grade, and that's a loose term, but I, but there could be, you know, 20,000 out of 50. And then within the RV park business, there might be a third of that, that it, that is, you know, investment grade. So then part of the strategy for institutions and people that buy and sell to institutions would be to buy the smaller and expand or buy, buy communities that are that don't have public utilities or they're old and dilapidated and they fix them up or, you know, something that's happening now that's really never happened. And one of the appeals of this industry, it's, it's uh, supply constrained. So there's not, not new, new parks coming online or there hasn't been. And so now there's development pressure. And, and so I think, you know, it's much needed. I think the development pipeline is not going to satisfy the investor demand. So I think there's opportunities with development in this asset class, it doesn't have efficient financing, but if, you know, it's similar to the single family home developers, um, you know, all of those large guys have figured it out. They have a formula. And so I think that manufactured housing is, is in need of the same type of formula and that it's not just a, a guy who knows how to build housing and, and the infrastructure. It's, it's the financing behind it and the investors behind it that have the right, um, appetite for for the you know zero cash flow for a period of time until until it gets cash flowing right and you touched on this a little bit but can we talk about what markets are in the highest demand and uh, and what kind of markets do these types of assets usually perform best yeah so i think that everybody talks uh about the smile states okay so so you've got the East to the west, right? It's along the coast generally, right? Going down from, you know, Seattle and Portland, Maine, all the way down. I think that's where the population exists. And um, and so I think those are generally the, the more popular states to invest in. Um, doesn't mean that there's not opportunities everywhere, but a lot of people want to be in high growth states. I think there's states that have, you know, had a net uh, exodus of population and there's a net gain of population generally in the southeast the southwest and some other states selectively uh, colorado and you know and so 
So I think that uh, people, you know, rather than having to create your audience, if your audience is moving by the thousands every day to these different states and job growth is strong, whatever the drivers are, vacation, job growth, you want to be there and with the wind at your back so you don't have to work so hard to um, bring tenants into your into your community. So, so I think investors are typically looking for high growth states and maybe states that are up and coming that maybe have lower rents, uh, that maybe have opportunity. They see the rents growing because of various factors, demographic factors. So, so I think states like North Carolina are very popular. Uh, uh, you know, Texas is obviously a lot of people from your state. Uh, Giannis are, are moving from California to avoid high taxes and moving to Austin, Texas, where there's no state income tax. So I think that's been a driver of business. State of Florida, same thing. Uh, the climate and the uh, and and low taxes, I think, are are important. And um, and then the senior migration is also, and that sort of plays into both MH and RV. I think both of those industries benefit from the senior migration. Got it. Now, I just want to touch on this briefly. You know, in a sector where affordable housing is a huge priority for most metros, you know, where do manufactured housing and RV opportunities fit into the landscape? Yeah, so affordable is is a huge issue in the United States and, you know, outside of the United States too. There's there's a there's a big affordability problem and and it's not being met um, in, in a lot of you know, metro areas and even uh, rural areas. So uh, manufactured housing in particular has played a significant role in that. And it's it's not government subsidized, but it actually, it, it's sort of tied into some government programs in the United States because uh, Fannie and Freddie have an affordability mandate to uh, finance affordable housing. So they, you know, they actually have a, you know, a do good mandate for what, what they do. It's not just about money. And so uh, they're trying to help, um, you know, displace people, have affordable housing. And part of that is, is the financing. If there's no financing, then things aren't affordable. And so uh, the affordable housing mandate for multifamily and, and mobile home parks, it's, it's all bundled in the same category. And so, so I think that's a big driver of mobile home park and manufactured housing uh, a demand. I think that because Fannie and Freddie, they have to hit those mandates. I think that, um, that makes, um, makes it more viable. And, and I, and again, back to the, what I talked about at the beginning with the cost of the housing, uh, the manufacturing on a, an assembly line versus building, you know, on site, it's much more affordable there. And then you've got, in addition, You've got the Fannie Freddie mandates that are bringing in low cost debt for individuals to keep things affordable. I think those two things are are working in in the favor of, you know, keeping this asset class alive and viable. And um, you know, they've. I don't want to get into the whole the, the entire affordable housing conversation, but I think this is one avenue that mm-hmm. is uh, is viable and and. You know, I've watched it over 25 years and it continues to be affordable as if you look at the cost of apartments and housing right now, it's it's through the roof. And so, yeah, so the lot rent, you know, even with the cost of the home, whatever the cost of the home is, it's still far more affordable than most of the other uh, options that you have out there. Got it. Can you talk a little bit about current macroeconomic factors such as inflation, rising interest rates, higher insurance costs? How is this sector being affected by that? Yeah, it's a tough one because uh, I think the owners of the communities are are kind of stuck in the middle. Like like you know, same thing with the apartment business. I think that you know, inflation happened and it wasn't created by the landlords, and so the cost of everything's gone up. The cost of insurance tax increases, property tax increases continue to happen and variety of other, you know, almost every category of expense has gone up. And so um, the owners of the communities, just like any real estate owners trying to keep up with their costs, they don't want their expenses to exceed their revenue because the costs have gone up. So 
So they pass that on to the residents like, like every other business. Um, but what's happened in recent years, and it's happened more in recent years, is, is um, the government started to put some rent controls in certain places around the country, and it, it's made it difficult for owners of communities and apartments and other asset, you know, housing related assets to, you know, to keep up because uh, if you're regulated on your rents, you start falling behind because your expenses are going, they haven't regulated the expenses. They've only re- regulated the rent. So, so it's been tough. Um, but, but I, you know, I think that whether, whether the landlord's passing through those expenses or not, even if he's passing through those expenses, it's still the most affordable housing. So, so I think that's forgotten. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the landlords, uh, you know, maybe get blamed f- for this, but I think that again, they're just passing through their expenses and they're giving returns to their investors and just what they've always done. It's just the costs have gone up so high. So, right. but I think that with all that baked in, uh, manufactured housing is still the most affordable. So, I think it's still great, but uh, I think, you know, there's other factors beyond our control that, that cause all this inflation. So, yeah, but, but I think that it serves its purpose in the industry and it should be, you know, they should look for ways to enhance it even more. What's your short-term outlook for the sector? Yeah. So I think that, you know, lending drives every industry. So when the lenders are, you know, they're closing up shop or they're, or they're not really allocating as much money to, to lending. They're, you know, they're sort of asset managing more than they are lending. I think it slows down everything. And so, but I think the fundamentals of this asset class, you know, when the economy's um, suffering and when, when people are, I don't know, maybe there's, there's more struggling people, you know, for housing if you're the affordable provider, then you're probably sitting in the best place of all the asset classes. If you're if you're in the luxury business and and there's a potential recession or downturn, that's probably not where you want to be. So I think that it's continued to outperform most other asset classes through the last 30 years. I think, um, yeah, it, it's been one of the best performers. So I think that um, it, it's a safe place. And I think most people sort of are, are looking at buying into the demographic bubble. Like many of the pension funds we speak to that are sort of macro investors that follow trends, they like the affordability, they like the senior. Those are two growing demographic uh, groups. So if you're if you're riding the wave of demographics and you're not trying to, um, you know, buck that trend, I mean that's that's where you're going to see growth. And so if you invest in that asset class, I think that's a safe place to be. And that's that's where mobile home parks play a huge role, and RV parks to a lesser degree, but they do serve uh, sort of a a portion of that housing. What changes have you noticed in the space recently, and and which do you think will have the most lasting impact moving into twenty twenty four? Yeah, so so I think the the number of investors that are getting into the asset class exceeds the number of deals available. So there's oftentimes private equity and other groups that they've uh, they've done a lot of research. We've had conversations. They've created a white paper. They've gotten the mandate. They may have raised the money, uh, but, but they're unable to place the money or maybe place it at the level they want to so, or they projected. So I think that there's probably more money chasing deals than there are deals right now. So, right. so I think that... and. And then the people that have bought deals, they have a um, pressure to perform for their investors, right? So I think that, um, you know, the, the need to raise rents, if, if that's the only lever they can pull, then the need to raise rents, you know, they have a lot of pressure to do that, which comes down on onto the residents. So I think that if, if the industry has too many aggressive investors that own it, it could uh, run the rents up, you know, right up to where the apartments are and, and some other asset classes, uh, housing options to where it's affordability gap maybe is not as pronounced as it has been. And so I mm-hmm. think that, you know, we, we run the risk of that if it, if it grows more aggressively than some of the others. But, 
I still I look at I look at where apartments are going. I look at where single family home rentals are, which is a big business segment right now, and I still see a huge gap. So I think that yeah. we provide that, but you know, but there's certain markets and certain scenarios where maybe um, a region has gotten uh, pushed a little bit too hard. But but I think in general it's still a healthy gap and still a healthy affordable ho- housing option. So I think that's. That's a trend I've noticed as far as supply and demand. And the other trend is just development. If they can figure that out, I think, you know, you want to have enough supply for these REITs to, to, to have a healthy pipeline and to provide returns and growth to their investor base. And so, um, so I think that's probably the challenge. I think uh, Sun and ELS uh, adding marinas to the segment provided them with significant growth over the last, you know, five years. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, you know, probably filled the gap on on uh, on some growth that they couldn't achieve in the MH and RV space during that time frame. Well, Michael, given your specialized background and experience, I'm sure our listeners would be curious to your answers to a few of our rapid fire questions, words of advice. Are you ready? Sure. All right. So if you were given $50 million today and had to invest it immediately, what would your go-to asset type be, location, and why? Wow. Um, so um, I would see, I would say RV resorts, but park model RV resorts, and I would say in, and with a large development component, and in the states of Florida, Arizona, probably would be my two favorite states. But I think that um, good thing about park models is they classify as RVs. So RVs don't have any rent control regulations or so it's sort of you can you can raise it to market. Mm-hmm. And uh, so so I like that about the park model space, but it behaves and it's stable like a mobile home park. So it doesn't have the volatility of the income and um and and then the rent control and regulatory environment is is very good for it. So I think uh, for years to come, that will be a viable asset class to invest in and development is much needed. Nice. Favorite tool or software you use on the job? Wow. Okay. So And and don't feel compelled to just say Crexy right off the bat, mm-hmm. even though I know No, no it's um <laughs> Yeah, I, I would think that uh, you know. We use Crexy primarily in our distribution uh, to to our investor base, and they've learned to sign the NDA, and they've learned to get in. Initially, it was uh, they had to be trained to do that, but now everybody understands how to get it in Crexy, and they understand the importance of the confidentiality, and and that makes our clients happy. Um, so, so Crexy is obviously a, a daily tool that we use. We also use. Uh, uh, constant contact and and that sort of helps us organize our database and it helps us uh, when we're doing a a Crexy blast sometimes we'll take different databases from constant contact and utilize those with our with our Crexy. so so I think those are our two main ones I'm not like on my team I'm not the technology guy but I know there's there's a lot of like software and a lot of things that we use to uh, like GIS, we have, you know, but I don't know all the terminology for for those things. So, but I think the primary two that I, I'm familiar with are, are Crexy and Constant Contact. And what is the most common misconception about your job or industry? Hmm, misconception. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people think I sell the homes within the community. So. I always have to explain to them that we're not involved in the homes. Typically, uh, we we sell the community, the dirt under the homes, and sometimes there might be some homes included, but for, but the primary business is selling the income stream that comes from the residents that lease the land. So so that's probably the biggest. If I'm just talking to someone on a a plane or a train or an elevator, uh, you know, I have to get past that initially. Got it. Well, as we wrap up, do you have any parting words you'd like to share with our audience? There was one thing that I wanted to say that I just remembered is, and it was sort of a tribute to Sam Zell and indirectly, it was just, 
it, it was, and you guys tell me what you want to, how you want to do it, or if you want to do it at all. But it's just, you know, when I told you that when I joined the business, it was sort of pioneering and, and there was no lending and all that. So the person who sort of made this industry what it is, and the person who sort of paved the way when everybody said no, and we're not interested and, you know, blah, 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 Sam Zell, you know, he just, he was totally committed to it. And he probably started a little bit before me, but didn't really do it in a big way until around the same time that I, that I uh, started in this business. And so he sort of, he did this privately before he took it public. And then when he took it public, he had all the smart, you know, smart people, analysts that were like poking holes in it, you know, just making fun of what he does and saying, you know, how do you know this isn't going to blah, blah, blah. And he had to just weather the storm with all the doubters and all those doubters represented money, right? All the big banks and all the private equity firms, and they were all doubting Sam Zell. And so, so like he had the strength and the pioneering vision and, uh, that cowboy sort of nature to, to just keep, stay the course. And then, you know, 15 years later, they're like worshiping him. Then he starts the RV business and they doubt him again and they poke holes into everything that he was doing. And then he proves them they wrong. They didn't learn the first time. Yeah. And he proves them <laughs> wrong in the same thing. And then they're worshiping him and he gets into the Marina space, same thing. They doubt him. And now the Marina space is getting institutionalized. So, so my business without someone like him, if there wasn't anyone that filled in the gap like he did, would be much more difficult because I'd still be begging banks to do a loan for the deals that I'm trying to sell. But Sam paved the way and he sort of had that attitude like, I don't care, I'm right anyway. And so you can follow me or you cannot follow me. It doesn't matter. I'm still going to do it. And the smart guys started betting on Sam and he, you know, he performed. And so... So Sam or people like Sam through the years, you know, made this industry legit, made uh, the career that I took viable. And, and, you know, what he did indirectly allowed me to do big deals, make a lot more money and serve my clients. And, and my clients made a lot more money because Sam Zell made a real business out of it. And, and now, you know, the banks have the template. The banks know this is how this asset runs. It's safe. We're okay with it. Here's the playbook. They didn't have the playbook before. So I think that he just played such a vital role in the business. And, you know, I think that he probably doesn't get enough credit. You know, they just think he's kind of a guy who goes in a motorcycle and whatever, smokes cigars and wears jeans and he's outspoken and smart. But, but he, his stick to itness with these asset classes was was vital. I mean, he was in office and he was in apartments as well. But you know, this was, I think, the asset class that like probably he had the biggest impact in because there's a lot of apartment guys before him, so he didn't pave the way on apartments necessarily. And the same with office, but uh, but he's very smart. And, and so like anyway, he was he was a pioneer who made all of this possible and. Um, so if there's a way that I could uh, include that in my thing, I because I, I, I really appreciate him and and you know they, you know through the years they they didn't sell anything and they I was like the only one they ever hired to sell their assets so that was like a big honor for me, and yeah. um, and so we did a big deal for them but but it was just you know just knowing that company and you know that created viability for sun to be born right sun communities to start up because els had proven and then the other guys came in the business and you know all the big institutional guys that i mentioned before the private equity guys all those guys are in the business really because of sam and so it's and it's amazing and same internationally sam zell is you know we we brought them deals in europe and all that so like he's sort of made the whole thing legit and just because there's a lot of people that uh, they're not going to go in alone unless they know there's some real people that have yeah. gone before them. And so when Sam's jumped in, you know, it checks the box for like 80% of the world. And they're like, okay, this is a good business. So, so anyway, you know, that's a tribute to him. And I, but I, but I think like to talk about this industry without talking about him, I think was, uh, 
There's others that were involved besides Sam, obviously, but he's the one who, you know, had the the strength to go public and sort of to have all those earnings calls and all that stuff and answer all those questions that the private guys didn't really need to do. And so that paves the way for all of us. So. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights. I know you're very busy and we appreciate you spending your time with us. Where can people find you online if they want to get in touch? Uh, you can find me at colliers.com slash MHRV, or you can email me at mike.nisley at colliers.com. Michael, thank you again for being with us. Thanks, Jonas. Appreciate it. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure not to miss the next one. Visit go.crexy.com slash podcast. That's go.crexy.com forward slash podcast and sign up to get the very next episode delivered straight to your inbox. You can also subscribe to the Crexy podcast on your favorite podcast app or check out our YouTube channel at www.youtube.com slash Crexy for video recordings of each episode. Bye. Stay well. We'll see you next time.